Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Imperfect, but capable of extravagant love. We give thanks for those who have revealed to us the very face of God. Amen. And please be seated. As we shared at the beginning of this service, today is the Festival of All Saints Day. The Festival of All Saints celebrates the faithful women and men, known and unknown, past and present, whose lives have been marked by the love and grace of God. It's an opportunity for us as a church to thank the Lord for them and to remember the roles that they have played in bringing divine love into our lives and into this world. At times, the notion of a saint has come to mean that a person is otherworldly and quite possibly perfect. In some Christian traditions, one requirement for achieving sainthood status is proof that that person has somehow worked a miracle in the world. A miracle. A miracle is defined as being a surprising and welcoming event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of divine agency. A surprising and welcoming event that's considered to be the work of divine agency. Perhaps similar to the story that we heard this morning in which Moses struck a rock and water gushed out so that Israel could have their thirst quenched in the middle of the wilderness. But I'm not convinced that miracles need to be so grand. I mean, refreshing water comes to our lives in many various forms, doesn't it? Nor am I so sure about the idea of a human needing to be perfect. For if perfection is that which makes a saint, then not even Moses was saintly. Nor Jesus' loving disciple John, he was not saintly. Nor was the Apostle Paul saintly. The Greek word for saint is agios, which refers to a person who is dedicated to the service of God. Now, if God, as 1 John tells us, is love, then perhaps a saint could be any person, any person among us who is dedicated to the service of love. And this idea then transcends all kinds of dualities, doesn't it? Christian, non-Christian, orthodox, unorthodox, love as the revelation of divine agency in and through saints among us. And that love tangibly and meaningfully among us, well, that is in some deep and profound way a miracle, isn't it? For certainly that is, especially in light of today's ever-increasing angst and division, a surprising and welcoming event the work of divine agency, love in our midst. 
And according to this morning's reading from the New Testament in Hebrews, these miracles of love stand among humankind like a witnessing cloud that urges miraculous love in our own lives and in our own particular worlds today. In this morning's responsorial, we sang, Lord, this is the people that longs to see your face. And this morning, we have the opportunity to hear from a couple people at Pearl who will point at the beautiful lives of some humans and declare before us all there. That right there, that is a miracle. That is a saint. That is a human being who has made the very face of God manifest in my life through love. And truly, that is a witnessing cloud of God's everlasting kindness, which we get to celebrate on this special day. We'll begin by hearing from Valinda, and then after Valinda, we'll hear from Carlos. Good morning. I'm going to introduce you today to my friend Rosa. We'll call her Saint Rosa. And I've dubbed her the patron saint of gracious strength and Christian lesbians, Puerto Rican Christian lesbians to be specific. Um, these are things that I didn't think to, could go together. You were either gracious or you were strong. You were either a Christian or you were a homosexual. In my upbringing, uh, grace and strength were very separate for me. My dad was strong. He was an entrepreneur. He was a leader. He was also an arrogant, misogynistic, authoritarian who dominated and squashed my mom, my siblings, and me all under the guise of Christian family hierarchy model. He did not spare the rod. He verbally abused us, sexually abused me and my sisters, and he used words like submit and obey. My mom was gracious. She was very loving and kind and comforting. She was also weak, and she was a victim, and she was unable to protect us. She would use words like pray and forgive and pray and forgive. This was my model of strength and grace. My religious background was similar to many of you. It was made very clear that you were either a heterosexual Christian or not. You were a homosexual or a Christian. You couldn't be both. Pick one. Uh, in my 20s and 30s, I went to a very large non-denominational church in California, and because it was in California, we had our own counseling center and a parachurch ministry that was, uh, they said they were there to heal the sexually broken. The mission was that through counsel and prayer, they would heal homosexuality. This was in the 80s and 90s. I'm embarrassed to say this. Uh, we were pioneers of Christian reparative therapy. From our ministry, it went national, international. And if God didn't heal you supernaturally from your homosexuality, you could be a Christian and struggle with same-sex attraction, but you weren't allowed to express it. You had no hope of sexual fulfillment, no partner, no family for you. That was reserved for us privileged heterosexuals because we weren't sexually broken. We were whole. 
Then we moved to Florida, a church that was a little more welcoming of homosexuals. It was more progressive. I know we don't hear the words progressive in Florida in the same sentence often. <laughs> um, we even baptized a few gays, and that was very progressive in the early, early 2000s. But the message was that gays were not full or first-class citizens of Christianity. They were sinners just like us. And it still had the tone of love the sinner, hate the sin. This is where I met Rosa. Um, her and her wife came with their children to our church. And we had a couple of um, homosexual families or couples or individuals at the time. So the pastoral staff, we had to have discussions of what are we going to do with those gays? And we embarrassingly decided that they could pass out bulletins and be on the hospitality team, but they weren't allowed to be in any position of leadership or authority or influence. So when Rosa and her wife volunteered to teach children's church, it's like a true confession for me today, they were told they couldn't. And they were told that by me. I'm super embarrassed about that now. <laughs> That's where I got to know Rosa and her heart. She was so gracious when I was like, thanks, but no thanks. You and your wife can't help. Um, we both knew that it didn't feel right, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? She stayed. Whatever it was at that time that I used to qualify somebody as a Christian, Rosa qualified. She was raised in the church. She said the sinner's prayer. She believed in the Bible. She demonstrated the fruits of the spirit. She wasn't acting out her, her homosexuality in some lustful, selfish, grabby type way. She was keeping herself to the same standards of morality, of love, and respect that Jesus holds all of us to, regardless of our sexual orientation. She was a Christian and a lesbian. This sounds very silly, me saying it now, but 15, 20 years ago, that literally blew my mind. I did not have a box in my brain. There was no cognitive space. The synapses weren't firing. No neuropathways. I didn't understand how those two could go together until they did. And then at that time, I was going to um, a university, a very Christian conservative university. And in my human sexuality class, we were supposed to do a presentation. So for my presentation, I brought Rosa as my show and tell a living, breathing unicorn. They're real. <laughs> um, I introduced her as a Christian, gave her qualifications, and then I introduced her as, as a lesbian. Let's discuss, right? So in that classroom, she was so gracious. She wasn't militant. She wasn't defensive or angry. She responded to their questions to all of their challenges of her being a Christian or not. She explained her Christianity. She explained how she was married to a man and tried to be straight and how it was so detrimental to her soul, her psyche, her being. She got so depressed to the point of suicidal ideation. And if she stayed in that marriage, she literally would have died. She summed it up by saying something like, 
I know some of you have a problem with me, and that's okay. So gracious. She said, I'm okay with me. I'm okay with my sexuality. I'm okay with God, and God's okay with me. So strong. She showed how you could be gracious and strong at the same time. She stayed in the church as a second-class citizen for about five more years. And then she got unity her strength, and she left. She wasn't willing to be othered in a spiritual community that she was supposed to be in. She was no longer willing to be treated as less than. She wrote a letter to the pastors explaining how she would no longer be part of a system that wasn't willing to come out and affirm her. So to me, Rosa is a saint because she modeled how things that couldn't, I thought couldn't go together could go together. Homosexuality and Christianity, grace and strength. She was the catalyst to me expanding my head and my heart. She's an example of someone who lives their full, authentic self, including their sexuality, being led by love and graceful strength. She was brave and secure enough to be my show and tell. She was patient and understanding of others' ignorance and prejudice in the church. She was bold and wise enough to know when to leave an unaffirming relationship. And she did it all with graceful strength. And I use her as an example of trying to be the best of, for those of you that are Enneagrammers, my eight and my two to have gracious strength. You can be kind and gentle and not be weak. You can be strong and powerful and not be an asshole. <laughs> Putting those two things together, it can be done. And Saint Rosa, my patron saint of graceful strength and Puerto Rican Christian lesbians is my model for that. Thank you, Valinda, and thank you, Pastor Mike, for this opportunity. Uh, good morning, my name is Carlos, and uh, my family and I moved to Portland in 2012 after accepting a pastoral role um, at a local church. And 10 years and two major church traumas later, I found myself in my second season of church rehab here at Pearl. I'm grateful for this community and uh, for all of you who have also found your way to Jesus here or are in the process of, of doing so. Uh, these days I devote the majority of my time to the companioning and mentorship of university students, uh, particularly queer and students of color. And uh, this tradition at Pearl has always been one of my favorite weekends. In the church calendar, I so much appreciate getting to learn from new voices in our community as well as the saints that have impacted so many of your lives. I felt so honored when Pastor Mike reached out to ask if I would consider sharing this year and instantly stressed about creating a draft or spreadsheet to help me narrow down the multitudes of names <laughs> that started racing through my head. And the thing is, I, I don't do drafts and I don't know how to spreadsheet. Um, but in this whole process, there was a name that kept rising to the top and one that a good handful of you may actually be familiar with. Uh, to better appreciate why I chose this saint, you need to understand something of my own uh, personal story. 
I was born and raised in Los Angeles. And look at that. Okay, I see him, but also like, I left that little pause because in the 10 years that I've been in Portland and mentioned that, there's always like somebody that boos after that. <laughs> see, this is why Pearl is a safe place. <laughs> it's like, all right, we good? <laughs> My mother emigrated to the US from Mexico, um, apart from her family when she was only 13 years old. Um, I'm an only child and I grew up in a single parent home. And very early in my life, my father developed some pretty severe addictions, struggled with substance abuse, and checked into a rehab program connected to a small inner city evangelical church. Um, I was only months old when he checked himself out of that program and then right out of our family. You could say the good that came out of that is that my mom remained connected to that church, and it was in that community that I first came to know Jesus. I was chuckling when Valinda was sharing, because this is also in the 80s, also in California. And so, of course, I came to know Jesus through a terrifying fear of the rapture, um, a heavenly father who was most concerned with my behavior and performance, and a deep suspicion and prohibition of anything that appeared sounded or smelled Catholic. <laughs> um, I prayed at flagpoles. I boycotted Hollywood um, as part of a summer camp field trip. And the most rebellious thing I did was keep a secret stash of cassette singles, mostly Madonna, <laughs> Prince, but most scandalously, R.E.M.'s heretical anthem, Losing My Religion. Right? Was I already backsliding in junior high? People still say that? Right, that's right. My mother was often told, your son needs a father. You need to find yourself a man so he can have a father in his life and grow up to be a God-fearing man. So we'll leave that on that trigger of a cliffhanger. My saint was born uh, Richard Manning on April 27, 1934. He was raised in Brooklyn, New York in an Irish Catholic family at the height of the Depression. At the age of 18, enlisted in the Marines and was deployed to Korea. And just one month later, the armistice was signed and the war was over. Returning home and deciding then to pursue his love for writing by enrolling in a journalism program, experienced a transformational spiritual encounter with Jesus and left his writing program behind to enroll in a Franciscan seminary. And in May of 1963, Richard, known as Richie to his family and friends, was ordained a Franciscan priest. And when vows are taken in the Franciscan tradition, uh, the rule is one must change their first name to a saint's name, an outward symbol of putting on a new man in Christ Jesus. And Richie became Father Brennan, uh, Brennan Manning. And over these many years in ministry, Brennan was pretty open about his struggles with alcoholism, a cycle that he had picked up from his father and his father's father before him. He himself had started drinking heavily at age 16. His years in the priesthood were marked by seasons of formation with the fraternity called the Little Brothers of Jesus, he spent periods of living an ascetic lifestyle in a cave in the Saragossa desert of Spain, and an increasing demand for traveling for speaking engagements. And during these travels, he met a woman, Rosalind, a single mother of two, 
whom he fell in love with. He took a self-imposed leave from the priesthood for discernment and ultimately made the decision to leave the order and marry uh, Rosalind. And this, of course, put him at odds with the Catholic Church, not to mention his family, but felt released to follow his heart and become a family man. Brennan's demands for speaking engagements rose again and made a new ministry of speaking, leading retreats, and finally fulfilling his love and gift for writing. In the midst of all this, his troubles with alcohol persisted. Of his many writings, Brennan is best known today for the Ragamuffin Gospel. But the first book of his I came across was Abba's Child. These were words that at the time were beyond anything my maturity could fully grasp, and yet they pierced me. Brennan spoke of the imposter, the false self, that is consumed primarily with acceptance and approval. I hadn't realized just yet how much of who I was becoming was that imposter, trying to navigate through feelings of rejection, of abandonment, and performance in order to be loved. Brennan described it as the compulsive desire to present a perfect image to the public so that everybody will admire us and nobody will actually know us. His call was not only to bring the imposter out of hiding, but to a place of acceptance and even embrace. Brennan admonished me to define myself primarily as radically one that is beloved by God. The year was 2006, and it was a very important year in my life, a year of tremendous gifts. First, it was the year my wife and I welcomed our first child, my daughter, Chloe, somehow making me a father, her father, and this was terrifying because just a couple years before I had to begin to learn how to be a husband and now a father. Two roles I hadn't personally witnessed in my own upbringing. And second, that fall in my role as a campus pastor at my alma mater, I had the privilege of hosting Brennan as a speaker to our community over five sessions spread over three days. And he rocked that campus with scandalous outbursts, saying things like, God loves you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. I'm going to say it one more time. God loves you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never going to be as you should be. He already seemed frail, and his voice taking a toll from his lifestyle was often hard to understand, but the Spirit of God spoke through this man in a way I had rarely experienced before. Brendan was a controversial figure in the evangelical church for his audacity to cheapen grace and downplay our lustful and sinful natures. The greatest gift for me was that he was also extremely introverted, like myself, and between sessions could only stand to be around one or two people at most, and this meant that as his host, I got to share every meal and trip to and from his hotel every day with him. And the hours of stories and jokes and wisdom and affection that he shared with me offstage are gifts that I will cherish forever. He always demanded ice cream after every meal, and I was so happy to oblige him. Um, I hosted him again two years later in 2008, and his health already seemed to be in decline. And knowing of our mutual love for Ireland, 
On his last meal with me, I took him to a local Irish pub. Some friends and I would frequent for karaoke, Dirty Nellies, so that he could have a good bowl of stew. And a colleague said to me, you took a recovering alcoholic to a pub? <laughs> um, and he shared with me about the day that he would no longer have these struggles when we met again at that great tavern in the sky. And then we arm wrestled, as you can see. It was a draw. St. Brennan has been one of the most influential people for me in how I care and love people. I've heard it said before, and Pastor Mike mentioned earlier, uh, in my experience, I had heard that in order for someone to be considered for sainthood, they have to have performed at least three miracles. Um, I don't know about that. I can say that in my life alone, Brennan helped me heal my image of God. He helped me heal my image of myself as the beloved of God. And he was instrumental in making my life's work about helping others see the good in them that they often cannot see in themselves. Brennan often said, my story is a rosary, the beads of which are the people and experiences that have made me what I am. And I want to be about that. Brennan died in his home uh, in New Orleans on April 12th, 2013. He was 78. And the last time I saw him, I left him at the airport and gave him a kiss and asked him if he could speak a blessing over me. And I chuckled as he started, being familiar with the same words that his spiritual director had previously spoken over him. And so now I'll speak them over you. He said, may all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness, that you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child and sing and dance in the love of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you. Belinda and Carlos, thank you so much for sharing with us so honestly, tenderly, vulnerably. Uh, that's a gift to our whole community. This idea of a cloud of witnesses is not some ephemeral thing, it's real. I think if we close our eyes, we have a cloud of witnesses. It's the news that we read, it's the Instagram that we scroll, it's the angst and weight that we carry as we, in a very real way, feel everything that is happening in this world. And so I'm grateful for this annual festival where we get to remember the loving ones among us. And perhaps it should be more than a festival. Perhaps it should be a practice. A practice where we pause throughout our days and close our eyes and shut out all of the noise and all of the angst and all of the worry and all of the hate and hold the saints of love in our hearts like a castle a divine house being built by God that truly can make all things new. Will you pray with me? Imperfect but capable of extravagant love, we give thanks for those saints who have revealed to us the very face and heart of God.
We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.